you know, before we get to, to today's racing, uh, yeah, just maybe as from a coaching perspective, talk a little bit about how you try to embrace, you know, a celebration. It obviously was a huge day for U.S. skiing. So how did you, it, yeah, well, how did you guys manage that? We we did celebrate a little bit, um, but of course, you don't do it with um, toasting champagne anymore. You don't do it in a room. We just did it in our outdoor um team meeting under the streetlight in, in about, uh, you know, minus 17 centigrade. And, uh, you know, what we pointed out that just regardless of where you were in that race, um, everyone is a part of, we think the biggest delegation that we've ever brought to Europe for world cups. We have 21 athletes, 33 people total. Uh, and, and to have athletes that are just being as professional as they can be staff being so efficient and communicative, it's really amazing to me with the impossible logistics of COVID, how smoothly things are running. Um, <laughs> we we can all thank Chris Grover for that as well, but we have to we have to really throw a shout out to the athletes just for being really dialed, um, and that's pretty fun. And so yesterday was was huge, not, not just because Jesse won, but because it was probably the best distance day that we've had in over a decade. Um, I'm not a stats guy, but I would play some money on that. And what was pretty cool when I was trying to sneak into the start finish area to get a photo of Jesse on the podium, uh, Therese was very quick to go out of her way to congratulate, um, a couple of us staff members, you know, when we just sort of in, we're in the wake of a, of a sportsmanship issue last weekend with the Bolshinov incident to say the least. And to, and to just remember that that doesn't dominate the sport. Um, and even Bolshinov's not a poor sport all the time. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was really refreshing to just hear that from Therese after, you know, nobody likes to win more than Therese does probably. Um, and then Heidi walks up to us and says when she saw Therese cross the finish line and realized that Jesse had won, Heidi started crying uh, in tears of happiness for Jesse, you know, and that's just like, the, and apparently she told that to the Norwegian media, which who knows how that goes out, but it's just like people were really happy um, for Jesse, for the team, for the sport, for the pandemic, uh, you know, the struggles with that. It was just like nice to have some uplifting news. We even had an email from Karen Petty, an old national team skier. She just wanted so badly to have us pass on a, just a shout out to Jesse and it's the reach of communication is, is really cool. And, um, and we're feeling it over here. So talk a little bit about the women's experience today and, and perhaps, um, you know, snow conditions and skis and, and that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, sure. It was minus 19 when we woke up, uh, and it warmed to minus 11 outside right now and falling pretty quickly, but it was, uh, it was a reasonably cold winter day out there. Um, you know, people had face tape on, but nobody was getting frostbite. Uh, I think, you know, having Lynn on the start list the day ahead of a classic sprint that she intends to win, I think says a lot about this course. I mean, Lynn is not just a pure sprinter, but I, I thought that was that jumped out to me and uh, it was clearly the right move. Um, but it's a, it's a flat, fast course, even though you go up the mini Mörderbakken two times, that's about a you know, 90 second or 120 second climb. And it is a beast of a climb, but that's essentially it for long climbs. 
Uh, you have a lot of field skiing, a lot of grinding, and that's where Jesse is pretty devastating. And so uh, I was just really inspired watching uh, her get gapped and then claw back and work over to the tops of hills, really push through corners, able to come into a draft slingshot situation and be back with the pack. And it was not because she had faster skis than everybody. She had great skis, but it's because Jesse works the tops of hills. When the downhills begin, Jesse's already started descending um, before that point. You know, is there any, you know, at this point in the season, you know, and, and we can talk Jesse and then move through, you know, and kind of frame this in the context of some of the other athletes that have, you know, world championship aspirations, you know, Sadie Mobe Bjornsson and, uh, you know, Rosie Brennan obviously come to mind, you know, at what point in the season, you know, as you ramp or, or start thinking about world champs, do you start thinking about the conservation of potential energy, so to speak, right? Like conserving that or resting an athlete or like, oh gosh, okay, they're, they're putting in these massive efforts and now I'm, you know, as a coach thinking, okay, hardware at world champs. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about that in, in April, honestly. And uh, the beginnings of that are to skip Nova Mesto for the majority of the team. And we're still sticking with that plan. Um, for those that it fits, uh, that still need to qualify for worlds, they might be going to Nova Mesto or um, those that are not selected to the team, they might go to Nova Mesto. But um, that's a, that's a good example. Sadie will skip tomorrow. Um, <clears throat> so that even though she's on the start list, just to protect her back and not have, you know, a three day weekend be the beginning of her world cup season. We want to make sure that, uh, she is, uh, feeling healthy going into Ulrisaham. And another example is Rosie will, uh, skip Ulrisaham next week and go straight to Davos to begin her training camp. So a lot of a lot of little adjustments being made. People having distance starts, but not taking them today because they were just wanting one start this weekend. And before we jump to the guys' side, I mean, do you want to do you want to comment on any other athletes on the on the women's side before I segue a little bit? Yeah, if you didn't watch the race, um, you know nobody should worry about Rosie Brennan. She had some slick skis. She's struggled a little bit in this condition, which is really hard pack, cold. Um, and she she just hasn't found uh, just just the kick in this particular condition in the last couple of races. Um, and and so I I thought just watching her work with what she had was really impressive. Uh, she looked like she had energy. It's been building from uh, pretty low in Lati or kind of medium to a little bit better this weekend. And and I the right path. So. Uh, no stress with Rosie being 32nd, 33rd, I think. Um, and just, just that Sadie can just be home training. I mean, she's not taking it easy. She's not resting back at home. But she hasn't been going head-to-head with all these athletes. And for her to be 10th and 15th or roughly that um, this weekend, I think, is uh, just so enjoyable to watch. And it's so impressive. Just it's that's Sadie's back. Um, so when thinking about like the skis before I get to the men's side and it's cold, uh, I'm guessing there's a little bit more humidity than we might think of as like a bluebird cold day in the Rockies. Um, but how formulaic is the waxing for you guys? I mean, it's, 
you know, over, I guess on the surface, I would think, okay, it's pretty straightforward conditions for these folks. Um, but in reality, how formulaic is it to like set up a skier with, you know, good glide and good kick on a day like this? When, for example, if our only cue is looking at raw temperatures, humidity levels, and the sound of the snow, like coming over the feed, I mean, it's audibly very cold, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely is. It's the it's the kind of snow that when you when you hit it with your poles, it sounds like a Tie Fighter or whatever those uh, spaceships are in Star Wars. It's just kind of a piercing sound. Um, our techs have a a system that works pretty well. And the thing that's tricky about today is, you know, do you go with the cluster binder covered? You know, are you going hard wax? Is that going to last the full ten or fifteen k? And so, and and how do you match a ski? Uh, to that wax and uh, what our guys tend to do is uh, they identify a line or a particular wax that's working and they keep it very simple if you need more they stay with that same line uh, let's say roadie uh, and they have the bump wax and they have the speed up wax and so you got your wax and you have your bump and your and your speed up and people can head out with those three waxes effectively in their pocket. We keep it pretty simple. And for people that are new to this, can you clarify what you're referring to when you say bump and speed up? Yep. A bump is a bump is just a softer wax for more kick and to speed up is to cover the kick zone with a slightly harder wax. Um, it'll sometimes compromise the kick a little bit, but we'll make the skis faster. Okay, so on the guys' side, um, we come off of you know yesterday, just like in the women's race, we had really you know strong performances from both Gus Schumacher, I think, in ninth, and Scott Patterson, which I get, did not realize until post like well past the race was a career best uh, World Cup uh, result for him. Yeah. So you know that's a high note. And today, you know, I think we're all, you know, including myself, we're looking for those, you know, stars and stripes, candy cane, a little bit of a candy cane outfit going on in there. Um, although I like the outfits. So Gus is uh, 28th on the day and the only American male in the points. And Scott, conversely, uh, and you can maybe flush that out for us, but but was way off the pace uh, in back. So. Sandwiched in between there were lots of other skiers. Um, maybe describe, you know, Gus, and we've reached out to Gus and gotten a comment, but just maybe from your perspective, what was going on out there for the men's side? Yeah, well, just to frame the course, um, the men went first today. And so I, I was really hoping that the women were not watching the race in some respects because there were crashes after crashes. Um, and uh, Scott and David were involved in one. Uh, a full pig pile. Um, Scotty broke a pole and he just got a, took a French knee in the back. Oh no, maybe, maybe David put an American knee into a French back. I can't remember, but people were hurting after that. And Scotty, Scotty got a little beat up. He's going to be okay. Um, it was just too big of a crash to come back from. It wasn't the pole that did it, uh, but, uh, or the broken pole that did it, but, uh, so that was a bummer for those guys to be off the pack, off the pack right in the beginning. Um, but to me, the the course was fast. Uh, like I said, there's not a lot of climbing, and so the men's race, we knew this was going to be a circus because it stays together. That draft uh, just keeps everybody together, and the corners are they're treacherous. And so we saw some some injuries today too. Uh, Andrew Young went through a fence, and it was 
in some ways a uh, Noah Hoffman-esque crash where we actually had heard that he broke his femur. But, yeah, uh, that's, I had heard that this morning. Is just okay? hearing from uh, media, maybe it's not broken, and I really hope that's the case. Um, but the sound of him going through that fence was awful. Uh, gotcha. And when you say Noah Hoffman has crash, you're talking about, I think, in Ruka, you know, years ago where he broke his leg. Is that right? Yeah. And he went through one of the fists, one of the one of the uh, I don't know if it's a, it was a fist banner at the time. And it might be a local advertising uh, banner these days. But if basically what they are is they're they're thick cardboard um, with the advertisement, but they're held up by lumber. And I think um I just want to put it out there that needs to change because uh, it's it's dangerous if you get through really, those signs. Right. There's signs on a corner they should they should hold you back, sort of like Alpine Netting does if you hit that. And so tomorrow they're putting up mattresses, um, more padding, and they're taking some some big measures because it honestly it was ugly today. So kudos to the jury for responding. Um, if I had predicted this before the race, I would have said something, but nobody did. Uh, anyways, but the race of the day to me was Hunter Wonders. He was 36. Uh, this is the second weekend of World Cup starts in Europe, and he was 32 seconds out. And so he's going to get a ridiculous fist point race. And uh, he comes up the murder for the set, the small murder for the second time today, with a little gap in front of him to the back of the main pack. And we were just yelling at him, "You have got to stay." with that pack at the, you have to be with that pack by the top of the hill and i don't think it had anything to do with us saying that but he just clawed his way and was there by the top and so all the way until essentially the the finish where you go through the sprint course he was in the mix and even though numerically he was 36 a lot of guys between him and the points still um what a remarkable uh time back from bolshenov for a young guy. And, and I know he's, psyched. I know he's proud of himself and he really should be. He's a tough kid. So really exciting. Yeah. So maybe this is like the Schumacher effect. I don't know. I'm sure you guys, you know, behind the scenes talk a little bit about how one athlete can have, you know, and I know in, in fact, historically you guys have talked about Keegan that way on the women's side, um, you know, but how one athlete can have, uh, you know, a positive, reinforcement effect, you know, just by knowing that, you know, for example, in Hunter's case, uh, and all those guys from Alaska, they grew up racing against Gus, you know, he's a known quantity. And I'm sure over the years, there's been plenty of opportunities for them to like, maybe pip Gus at the line in a local anchorage race. Um, who knows, we'd have to talk to Gavin about that. But um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit about I'm just curious, like getting the sense that these younger athletes on the boys men's side are, are realizing like this is this is doable because Gus is achieving some of these results. Yeah, you know, we haven't been missing talent and we haven't been missing good clubs or good coaches. I think in some cases we've just been missing belief. And if there's one thing that is differentiating this group of guys, the depth, you know, from from the fastest all the way to the tenth guy down the line, uh they really seem to be believing in themselves and in men skiing and it's going to be the difference maker. Speaking a little bit about like junior, junior athletes 
and you know the appropriate time and place for them to be brought up to the World Cup. Um, yeah, I, and again, I, I would imagine that's unique for every athlete. And Gus is, case in point, is obviously one of these athletes who's ready to make that jump full time. Some others may not be. You know, what is the calculus when you think about holistically as a you know, when you're referring to junior skiers and bringing them up to, um, you know, it could be, you know, super tour. Maybe they've raced a few times at like Norwegian national championships, like Sophia Lockley, but bringing them to the world cup, like what, what goes through your brain about, you know, when is it appropriate? When is it not? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a little bit different, um, during a pandemic where, racing is not happening as much in the u.s and so i think um for me this year i have more uh i'm more likely to uh be comfortable with seeing a junior in a world cup whereas uh, in the past i just don't think it's the right level for most juniors if if not all I, we're very stepwise I like to see them you know, making the U18 trip and then and then doing well there and then making the World Junior trip and then doing well there and always going to U23s. Like even though Gus is having breakthrough results on the World Cup, in two days he goes to U23s because he also believes in being stepwise about his progress. And it's important to, uh, you know, drop down to those levels where you can do well and learn how to win and learn how to compete in the front of the pack and then jump into the deeper water and see if you can uh, swim any better than you could the last time you jumped in. It, as you've evolved as a coach and you've seen other countries bring young skiers into the World Cup fold and, and be successful. And, you know, if I think if we go through the results in the past four years, there's obviously major evidence of that on the, on the guy's side in a Bolshinov and a Klebo kind of outliers, but on the women's side, it seems like it's more frequent, right? Where you have a younger woman, you know, the, the Swedes are, are a good example. Uh, I always mispronounce her name, Fossil's home. Did I have that right? Okay. On the, on the Norwegian side, she's 19 podiums on the World Cup. Does that change your thinking a little bit about um, how to ex how to allow in a, in a younger athlete to experiment on the World Cup to see and learn more about that type of pacing? You know, I'm open to having my mind changed for sure. Um, I think it really comes down to just what's the approach? Uh, because we can screw up an athlete on the Super Tour. Um, we can screw him up at U18s, at World Juniors by, by putting too much pressure on the athlete by putting too much emphasis on results, results, results instead of process. And so in some ways it doesn't matter um, where the athlete is. The, the approach has to be, and the perspective has to be in accordance with uh, the age and their development and their personality. Some kids can handle a lot, um, but I don't think everyone can. Um, and so you just really have to assess, like, is this the right time and place for this particular athlete? That's probably most important. And then secondarily, I would look at kind of age, you know, juniors in general. It's probably too early to be starting World Cups, but there are exceptions. And if you miss those exceptions, you could be missing an opportunity. Um, classic sprinting tomorrow. Should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I just paid a $5,000 uh COVID testing bill for our 33 
uh, people. We had, let's see, 33, 43, 49 tests, 33 antigen tests, and and 16 PCR tests. That is that just for the Falun, say? That's just, yep, that's just this, this week. That's uh, to give people an idea of uh, what we're spending our money on this year. 